Hello, Kaiju campers, and welcome to Camp Kaiju Monster Movie Talk. I am your host, Vincent. I am so excited to be coming at you again. Going to be talking about, I almost said where it all started, but that's not exactly true. Anyways, this is Godzilla King of the Monsters from 1956, directed by Ishiro Honda and Terry O. Morse. Uh, the movie is a reworking, uh, maybe is a generous word for it, um, version of Honda's 1954 uh, Gojira movie from Toho Studios. So I'll get in, into the, a little bit of the history um, on the Japanese, the American cut, and what all that good stuff is about. <clears throat> Hey, thanks for coming in. I'm uh, going to be talking about Godzilla 1956. I'm going to talk about the good, the bad, and the downright campy elements of this movie as I saw it. Uh, I'm, also, I'm also going to cover some of the contextual history of the movie, uh, the time in which it was made, some of the creators, both in front of and behind the camera, and, you know, maybe wrap this up in maybe 30 minutes or less. So, looking forward to it. So, let's dive on in. Um... So like I said, the movie is directed um, ostensibly, it, Ishiro Honda directed the 1954 version. Between then and 1956, um, the success it had in Japan was noticed by some American Hollywood producers. And they said, hey, let's um, kind of get in on the action a little bit. And the director of this movie was named Terry O. Morse. And he was actually really known in Hollywood as an editor. Had been working since the 1920s. He had a great reputation as a film doctor. So um, not necessarily changing the bones of the movie, but changing all the other things like re-editing, inserting scenes, shooting new scenes in order to make, um, not Godzilla, but to make any run-of-the-mill B picture into something slightly more elevated. So. Morse knew what he was doing with Godzilla. Fortunately, fortunately for him, he had a lot to work with and didn't have to change a whole lot. So the um, actors for the movie, their names are Takashi Shimura. He plays Dr. Yamani. Momoko Koshi as Emiko. And Akira Takarada as Ogata. With them, we have Akihiko Hirata as Dr. Sarazawa. And they were in the 54 picture. What makes the 56 version really interesting, so Morse and these producers, what they did was they added an entirely new character to the 54 version. So, yeah, stop me if you're, getting, if you're like 54, 56, what are you talking about? Um, but I'm trying to, I'm trying to uh, go easy on you. So Raymond Burr is a Canadian actor, and he is playing a whole new made-up character named Steve Martin. He's an American reporter who goes to Tokyo to visit some friends. And while there, he gets caught up in this story of the century, a giant radioactive dinosaur that's running amok in the ocean. So he's a very interesting character. And he is played by Raymond Burr, who at the time was known for gangster movies. And he had just played the antagonist in Rear Window, the, the uh, Alfred Hitchcock 
movie with James Stewart. So Burr was actually a pretty well-known actor, at, at, you know, in his day. And that's one of the, again, something I'll touch on when I get to, like, what I really like about this movie. So that's the cast and the crew. Effects are by Eiji Tsuburaya. And what inspired this movie, obviously, was the atomic history that Japan had recently suffered at the end of World War II, which was 1945. Gojira, Godzilla, 1954, was released nine years later. So the the honest the that you know the horrific memories of two atomic bomb attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki still very fresh in the minds of Japanese citizens and the filmmakers behind the movie. What had happened even more recently, uh, you know, to the movie was a it's an incident that I mentioned in my Mothra video and anyone who's a student of kaiju movies would be familiar with the name Lucky Dragon number five. It was the name of a tuna fishing boat. 23 Japanese fishermen were out in the Pacific doing their job, living their lives, and they and their vessel got caught in the, um, the fallout of a hydrogen bomb test a uh, bomb that had gone off 86 miles away at Bikini Atoll. And that was the Castle Bravo test. Now this bomb was so big, it was twice as powerful as the scientists expected it to be. So like they had communicated, the American researchers had communicated to vessels in the area, like we have a clearly designated um, danger zone. Don't come within that danger zone. But because the bomb was bigger than they thought, that danger zone was um, completely erroneous. And the Lucky Dragon number five was, in fact, caught up in the fallout of that bomb. 23 men, after two weeks, they got back to shore, very sick, acute radiation poisoning. One of them ended up dying. To this day, is still credited as the first victim of the hydrogen bomb. So Godzilla and science fiction history aside, uh, just real world history, uh, you know, that's like, that's compelling enough. Um, and so that honestly had to happen. That had happened in March of 54, November of 54, Gojira is released to um, Japanese audiences, just domestically in Japan. And that movie, the tone is very somber, it's very poignant. It plays as, well, obviously a horror movie, but a very dramatic um, reflection on the Japanese history with atomic testing um, that had unfortunately been the case now for uh, just about a decade. It's a success in Japan. Like I said, uh, Good old Hollywood producers, they see they seize on the success and they decide to um, rework it and dub over, you know, dub, do some dubbing, um, insert new scenes, this and that. And um, I'm not going to get into what's right or wrong about that. Um, you know, I... 
I'm, I, I am certainly not a gatekeeper uh, by any means. Like, if you have problems with that, they're valid. Um, dubbing over a foreign film and reworking someone else's artistic um, license, absolutely valid arguments. What I'm going to do is just kind of put it into a cultural, historical context, and we'll do with that information as we will. So I'm not here to lay down the law on what's right or wrong. I'm just going to tell you, tell you how it happened and why it happened. Um, so th- to that, to that, um, to that end, uh, you know, Godzilla was not a a foreign concept to American audiences in the sense that, oh, it's a monster that's been enlarged by radiation and atomic testing. So bear in mind, um, another influence on the filmmakers, the Japanese filmmakers, was The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, a giant monster movie from 1953 that's about a giant lizard that gets woken up by atomic testing. Um, we had them in 1954, about giant irradiated ants, and tarantula in 55. I could go on and on about the giant monster, atomic giant monster subgenre of the 1950s. Godzilla was in this wheelhouse, so, uh, you know, that concept was, was something American audiences were very used to. What they were not used to were just foreign films in general. And that was the decision the creator, the producers made to, I don't know, make it more American and sanitize it a little bit, um, just to make it more digestible for American audiences. Um, I would say I'm glad they did that because this movie ended up becoming an enormous success. I'll get to that at the end. I don't need to tell you how successful Godzilla is, right? Um, What I do want to tell you is the synopsis for this film. Um, Just to, you know, in a nutshell, spoiler warnings if you're not familiar, but I um, would like to give you a backdrop of what I'm talking about when I get to my more in-depth review later on. So, um, this is just from Wikipedia. I would like in future installments to write my own synopsis. I was just pressed for time a little bit this week. Uh, so I hope you can forgive me there. Here we go. So injured American reporter Steve Martin is brought from the ruins of Tokyo to a hospital filled with maimed and wounded citizens. A recent acquaintance, Emiko, discovers him by chance among the victims and attempts to find a doctor for him. Martin recalls in a flashback, stopping over in Tokyo, where a series of inexplicable offshore ship disasters catches his attention. When a victim of those disasters washes up on Odo Island, Martin flies there for the story, along with the security officer Tomo Iwanagami. There he learns of the island's inhabitants' long-held belief in a sea monster god known as Godzilla, which they believe caused the ship disasters. That night, a heavy storm strikes the island, destroying houses and killing some villagers. The islanders believe that Godzilla was actually responsible for the destruction. So right there in that first sentence, you see that the film starts um, with a flash forward, if you will. Like Steve Martin is in the rubble. You're like, what's happened to him? 
Well, he'll tell you in a flashback through a series of narration. Um, I also want to point out that the film starts with the um, the sinking of a Japanese vessel in the ocean. You now know the Lucky Dragon number five incident happened within that same calendar year of making the movie. So the creators, Ishiro Honda, knew what notes they were playing. So anyway, Steve Martin returns to the island with Dr. Yamani, who is leading a team to investigate the damage. Huge radioactive footprints and prehistoric trilobites are discovered. An alarm rings and Martin, the villagers, and Dr. Yamani's team head up a hill for safety. Near the summit, they encounter Godzilla, and they quickly flee downhill. Upon Dr. Yamani's later return to Tokyo, he deduces that Godzilla is 400 feet tall and was resurrected by the repeated hydrogen bomb testing in the Pacific. To Yamani's dismay, the military responds by attempting to kill the monster using depth charges. Martin contacts his old friend, Dr. Sarazawa, for dinner, but Sarazawa declines due to a previous commitment with his fiancée, Emiko, Dr. Yamani's daughter. So there's a bit of a love triangle here. Um, Emiko is engaged to Sarazawa, but she's in love with uh, Ogata, who we haven't got to yet. <clears throat> uh, so now we've seen Godzilla. There are giant footprints in the sand. There's uh, a great scene with scientists and government people showing pictures of what Godzilla might look like. Reminded me of Jurassic Park a little bit with the impressions of the foot of the feet. It was very cool effects. So now Emiko goes to Sarazawa's home to break off her arranged engagement with him because, here we go, she is actually in love with Hideo Ogata, a salvaged ship captain. Dr. Sarazawa, however, gives her a demonstration of his secret project, which horrifies her. She is sworn to secrecy and unable to bring herself to break off the engagement. Godzilla then surfaces from Tokyo Bay, unharmed by the depth charges, and attacks the city, destroying a train before returning to the bay. The next morning, the Japanese Self-Defense Forces, JSDF, supercharges the tall electrical towers along Tokyo's coast to repel the monster. So, this device that Emiko has seen Dr. Sarazawa dis um, orchestrate is known as the Oxygen Destroyer. We, you know it, you love it. Um, it is a terrifying contraption of death that releases, you draw, it's like a canister, you drop it in salt water, it, it opens, it releases bubbles that um, skin the bone and every, or skin, yeah, skin everything off of the bones. Um, so Emiko sees this to like a goldfish, and it's horrifying. But you know it'll come, back, come into play later. So Godzilla now resurfaces that night and breaks through the electrical towers and JSDF defense line using his atomic heat ray breath. Martin documents Godzilla's rampage via tape recorder and is injured during the attack. Godzilla returns to the sea and the flashback ends. So now we're in the present time where we started with the movie. Martin wakes up in the hospital with Emiko and Ogata. <clears throat> Horrified by the destruction, Emiko reveals to them the existence of Dr. Sarazawa's oxygen destroyer, which disintegrates oxygen atoms in salt water. Emiko and Ogata go to Dr. Sarazawa to convince him to use his powerful weapon on Godzilla, but he initially refuses. 
After watching a television broadcast showing the nation's continuing plight, Serizawa finally gives in to her pleas. Because he's like one of those scientists who's torn between like, oh my god, I've invented something that could destroy life. I don't want to use it, but at the same time, people are dying by my not using it. So, great moral quandary there. Classic. So in the finale, a ship takes Ogata, Serizawa, Yamani, Martin, and Emiko to the deepest part of Tokyo Bay. In hard hat diving suits, Ogata and Serizawa are lowered down by lifelines near Godzilla to plant the weapon. <clears throat> Ogata is pulled up, but Serizawa delays his ascent and activates the device. He radios the surface of his, of his success and wishes Emiko and Ogata happiness together. Serizawa cuts his lifelines, taking the secrets of his invention to the grave. Godzilla succumbs to the oxygen destroyer, which dissolves his body in bones. All aboard the ship mourn the loss of Dr. Serizawa. Martin reflects what the world that the world can live again due to Serizawa's ultimate sacrifice. And if you'll pardon me for one second. <laughs> Those folks listening to the audio podcast version of this are going to love the sounds in my throat. Um, so, so there you have it. <clears throat> Now, what Raymond Burr is doing as the reporter Steve Martin during this whole movie, honestly, is standing on the sidelines doing what reporters do, just observing, making notes, speaking into a tape recorder. Uh, so in that, in that way, it, it was very easy to insert new scenes of him into this movie because he's not really doing a lot of interact, physical interacting with the with the actors in the original um, the original print of the film. So now I would like to discuss uh, the good, the bad, and the downright campy, as I saw it at least. Um, this is the movie that I, I grew up watching, I've seen. The original Gojira had not, was not released to Western audiences until 2004 when it was released on DVD. So honestly, um, this is not just the movie I grew up seeing, it's the, it's the movie that the whole world grew up seeing, unless you lived in Japan. Um, so, however, I had not seen it in quite a long time. Honestly, maybe 20 years. So I rewatched it. I was going in with a load of preconceptions. Um, I was thinking, Okay, let's let's watch the American cut. This American bastardization. Let's watch this white um, American go in to a Japanese story and tell me what they want to do with their monster. Loaded with preconceptions. So maybe my bar was kind of low. Um, with that said. Um, this film, I thought, exceeded my expectations. Um, like I said, Steve Martin, as the character, he doesn't do a lot other than sit back and observe. And in that way, any notion I had of like a white savior narrative was completely dispelled. And I was like, oh my God, thank you. Thank you that he's, that the creators and the editors didn't just like completely re edit it to make the white American 
like a hero and save the day. He does not. No, Steve Martin, he, the movie opens with him bloody and in rubble. Like, what the heck just happened? And it ends that way for him. Like, he, he, he representing American imperialism in the height of the Cold War is com- literally stomped on by, by the Japanese might. Um, I'm not saying that's what the creators went for, but that's what I got out of the movie anyways, and I really dug it. Um, more about Steve Martin and Raymond Burr, who plays him. Again, I was just impressed by the level of commitment to this project. Like, I, I was just thinking in the terms of like 1950s, B-movies, giant bug movies, that this movie for American audiences shouldn't have been as good as it is. And they, first of all, that's a credit to Ishiro Honda. But it's also a credit to Terry O'Morse and Raymond Burr for committing to making this as damn fine a picture as possible. It could have been schlock. It, it could have been a terrible recut. It could have been overly dubbed. It could have been ob, like dollar bin material. But it wasn't. They kept so much of Honda's photography. They kept so much. They honestly didn't dub over every Japanese actor. There are scenes um, between them, between Japanese actors, where there's no, not even subtitles. You're just listening to them speak Japanese. Now, trivia, I know like the Japanese that they're speaking is incoherent. That's because of the American editing. But I didn't know that watching it. And, uh, you know, you're just... You're just appreciating the fact that they are, that they're not dubbed. So, so that was refreshing. There were just a lot of refreshing things about this movie. Um, and, and, and also another bit of fun trivia, Raymond Burr, apparently he filmed all of his scenes in one 24 hour period. That's what he was contractually, um, obligated to do just for 24 hours. The fact that he went in there, and seemingly gave it his all. He does not phone in this performance. He looks scared. He looks um, very compelling. And, I, and I, as an audience member, I was very engaged with his performance and his narration. Um, you know, it's a it's a thematic device that worked for me. It gave me a vibe of like, oh, this is like a um, a film noir. You got that rich voiceover. He has a rich voice. Uh, just more things that I thought um, elevated the movie beyond what it could have been. Um, I also... Okay, yeah. So I think I covered that pretty well. Um, so then the bad is is just comparing it to Honda's work. Uh, the For the most part, the editing of the new scenes and the old seamless and that's because they had terry O'Morse, that the the film doctor he like if you if i hadn't known beforehand that these films were new and somehow edited in i would not have noticed upon further reflection you go oh yeah those new scenes the um, cinematography compared to the japanese cinematography from the 54 version (laughs) black and day black and white uh, differences, but it, it comes down to the black and white. Like Honda's Ishiro Honda's um, 
play with light and silhouette and he's got beautiful like vistas of the city on fire with the silhouette of Godzilla in the background. Look guys, um, it's rare that you see a Godzilla movie that takes itself A, as seriously as this one does, but B, as terrifying as this one is. Like this is, I would, I would be so bold to say that this movie is a borderline horror film. Uh, it is chilling. It is spooky. It is full of um, dead people. <laughs> I don't know what else to tell you. And Raymond Burr on the sideline is just like, I am completely helpless in this situation. And that's how you feel. I'm sure that's how fe people felt um, when the bombs fell on them. So it's really powerful. Good stuff. Bad stuff. Great filmmaking. Um, <laughs> which means finding a really campy thing about this movie was sort of difficult. I had to, I, I, you know, you have to come up with something, right? But uh, everyone is so sweaty in this movie. Like anytime they're looking at Godzilla, just listening. Anytime our love, you know, our lovers are like in, in passionate angst, listening. There's just everyone, whoever like the makeup artist was with dabbing the, the, the sweat on their faces, good job. Unsung hero of this film. So all in all, my class, my uh, ultimate rating, I'm going to give Godzilla King of the Monsters 1956 a classic rating. I believe it stands the test of time. I'm not going to outright compare it to the 1954 um, original original because as I see it they are two sides of the same coin apples and oranges if you watch 1954 you're gonna get a more somber reflection on the horrors of the atomic age if you go with the 1956 version you're still gonna get those themes of atomic fear but they're going to be more subtextual and what you're going to get is more of that American type of action movie that, uh, I mean, I don't know if you could tell, uh, I kind of, you know, I like that. I like those movies. I think that's um, something that makes American films unique. So it works. Both work. Both are great times. It's just depending on what you're looking for. But for the 1956 version, I think it stands the test of time. Um, yeah, so that's it, guys. I really appreciate you hanging out. I want to just plug a few things. I want to say that uh, please follow and engage with Camp Kaiju on Instagram and Letterboxd. You can buy this t-shirt and some other t-shirts on our uh, through our partner Bandits Emporium. The link for that is in the bio. So uh, do yourself a favor and check those out. Um, I'll also give you an inside scoop that I have started a podcast version of this show. So um, if you don't want to you know, watch my dumb face every week, you can follow wherever you podcast and just listen on your own time and your own convenience. And what else? Um, yeah, I think that's it. Next week... 
oh boy, next week I'm going to talk about a movie I've never seen. Um, I'm going to, you know, in the same theme of the ninth, of the classic Toho movies, I'm going to cover Frankenstein Conquers the World. I think it's about time I give this puppy a ride. So join me next week for that. And until then, take care and stay campy. Yeah, there you go. All right. Bye, guys.